Welcome to the latest edition of the College of American Pathologist CAPCAST. I'm Becca Battisfor, Content Specialist with the CAP. On this episode, Dr. Lacey Durham will be talking with Dr. Emily Volk, President of the CAP, about her experience as a woman in pathology and leadership. Before we get into the questions, Dr. Durham, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, y'all. I'm Lacey Durham. I'm a third-year pathology resident here in Chicago, and I am so, so super pumped to have been invited to host today's podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a Texan. I'm doing a fellowship in general surgical pathology, and I have a really fun social media account under the alias of PathDoctorMD. Great. Thank you, Dr. Durham. And thank you both for joining the podcast today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, So with that, Dr. Durham, I'll let you take it from here. Dr. Volk, let me just tell you right now that when I found out that you would be the next president of the CAP, I thought that that was seriously so dang cool. I was truly so inspired to see a woman front and center in the highest leadership position in the CAP. Can you tell us about your experiences as the second female president of the CAP? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's great to be here with you. And uh, I I do follow you on social media. So I am also really tickled to get to work with you today (laughs) and to get to meet you today, Dr. Durham. So fun. I really appreciate the positive spin you've put on pathology in the social media world, especially in TikTok and on Instagram and and so forth. So thank you for that. Thanks. Uh, You know, I I am the second woman uh, president of the CAP. And to me, that's a little bit surprising, uh, given what year it is and, and so forth. Uh, Dr. Mary Cass was the first woman president, and she was president a little over 20 years ago. And oh, wow, that's she, so long ago. It, it is a while back, yeah, right? Yeah. And I remember when she became president, I was still relatively young in my career. I, I was an attending pathologist, uh, but I was pretty young still. Uh, and I really looked up to Dr. Cass. Uh, she, you know, presented herself with a, a lot of gravitas. Gravitas is such a fun word. What is gravitas? I, I don't know if I know that word. Gravitas is sort of a weightiness, uh, a, a seriousness that, ah. you know, you, when she came in the room, you know, she, she projected a sense of being presidential. Oh, I love that. All right. She was, um, you know, uh, getting getting the business done. You really felt confident that someone uh, was in charge and taking the work seriously. Yes. So she brought gravitas uh, to her job, uh, and to do that uh, uh, as a woman, you know, I think that's one of the areas where maybe you know traditionally some folks have felt like women could fall short. Right. Um, and uh, Dr. Cass certainly was uh, an example of how that wasn't the case. So being the second one, uh, the second woman president uh, certainly comes with some sense of responsibility. You know, I don't want to let anybody down. Uh, And that might be different than some of the uh, men who are presidents of the CAP. I I know they don't want to let the members down, but they, they may not feel a particular obligation to represent their gender. Right, right. And like the pressure, I feel like that would be so much pressure to take on, especially with the 20 year hiatus between the last woman. I mean, I I can tell you, I felt very supported. uh, And the community of of pathologists, you know, all of, you know, from 
you know, all of my colleagues at the CAP were incredibly supportive uh, as I stepped into the role. The CAP staff also provides uh, tremendous support for the CAP president. So the organization is designed to, to set the president up uh, for success. So regardless of, of their gender identity, right? So right. Um, I definitely uh, have benefited from that sense of support. Um, I think it's been interesting too that my my husband is a member of the CAP, uh, Dr. Dan Mays, and you know is an incredibly productive uh, academic pathologist uh, who has you know his own ambitions and own accomplishments, and he has been incredibly supportive of me pursuing this role, uh, and also doing the the work of the first spouse, if you will, yeah, of, yeah, of the president absolutely. of yes. the CAP, um, <laughs> which to my knowledge has has not been uh, a, another member before. And he's oh, done wow. that. He's done that with great uh, grace. And um, I really appreciate his willingness to partner with me in this pursuit. That is so fun and exciting. And I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but the ultimate power couple in pathology. You know, we really don't regard ourselves like that, but I, I know, it I'm is sure kind of don't. a hoot, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yep, it is a hoot. That's right. All right. Let me ask you this next one. When I talk to pre-med and medical students about pathology as a career in medicine, I love to brag. I love to brag at baseline, but I especially love to brag about how our field has just as many women as we do men. And I recently learned that women have now surpassed men, making up 60% of all pathologists. Have you noticed this change throughout your career? You know, I, I have to say I have throughout my career worked with about an equal number of men and women. Yeah. Uh, in the field. So I don't know that I have experienced a shift uh, directly. Uh, I have uh, noticed at the CAP more and more women being interested in taking on uh, leadership roles, uh, committee chairmen's or chairperson's uh, roles. Uh, I've noticed uh, more of an interest in uh, participating in the board of governors, running for the board and so forth. So we've definitely seen uh, from a leadership perspective, uh, a larger uh, number of women participating, uh, certainly in this at the CAP and in some of our uh, other professional organizations in medicine and pathology. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool because I feel like in medicine in general, women are still fighting to be in those top leadership positions. And it's really cool to see our field kind of being like, well, like, yeah, we have the problem, but may maybe not as much as other fields. It's really, it's really inspiring to see that. Absolutely. I think um, at the board, uh, we are, uh, you know, almost at uh, the, I think we are near the 50% mark for uh, gender diversity. Um, That's incredible. That is incredible. It, it would be great to get to a point where we're not, we're not thinking about it as much as we are now because yeah. we feel more secure. In Absolutely. It. I totally agree. It would be so nice to just be a pathologist. It would be nice to not even have a conversation about what it's like to be a woman pathologist because we could just talk about what it's like to be a pathologist. I totally agree. 
Well, with that being said, let me let me ask you a follow up question to that. With gender diversity and pathology now being skewed towards women, I'm a young and in some regards still a somewhat optimistic doctor. And I would love to believe that women in medicine are provided the same benefits and opportunities as our male counterparts. And I know that we have briefly already discussed this, but do you think that it's a bit naive for me to believe that my salary right out of training will be similar to the men standing right next to me at graduation? And will I have the same opportunities to advance my career as they will? It's a great question. I... I'd hope it's not naive for you to expect that. Uh, I think I think um, you should expect that you would be paid appropriately for the work that you do, regardless of your gender. Right. It is important for any person going out into the into the workforce, whether or not they're in medicine or any other profession, uh, to do their homework to the best of their ability before they take. You know, before they sign a contract, uh, make sure they know what the market rate is for the skills that they offer, and to really uh, be ready to uh, ask for what they know they deserve. Yes, yes, that is so good. One of my former co-residents, now fellows, came and talked. She came and talked to me in the residence room the other day, and she was excited to tell me that she had successfully negotiated her contract for her future job. And I thought that that was such a big thing for her to do. And we don't really get that much training, if any. I feel like maybe I have certainly like like read books or I, I that's like one of the weird things that I do in my free time. But I don't know how I can sh like tell women to just ask for it. And also, I don't know how to ask for it. Like, how would you recommend us negotiating our contract or asking for more that we know that we probably ought to be getting? Right. I, so, I mean, my, this advice applies to anybody, right? And that, and that is, there's a great book called Never Split the Difference uh, by Chris Voss. And he was a hostage negotiator. And I highly recommend uh, reading this book before you uh, really make any kind of a financial negotiation. I see. Um, and it, it just really lays out the psychology behind successful negotiation and, you know, the, the um, good use of anchoring bias, you know, how to, you know, so you don't set the floor for your potential uh, salary too low and that you don't accidentally set a ceiling. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, these are skills that are, are really not gender specific. Right. Um, but they are skills that are learned, just like you can learn how to look at a, a colon polyp, you can learn how to negotiate successfully. So I, I think that some folks in medicine, you know, we get personally pigeonholed into the sciences. Yeah. Um, and maybe even there's a little bit of reluctance to ask for, you know, to be talking about money at all. You know, we go into medicine right, and, it, and right. it's altruistic, right? Yes. So, and you shouldn't ask for more. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we should ask for what we could, the most that we can possibly get paid. I mean, right. why in the world would we be, uh, shy about that. Yes, um, ma'am. That's right. Yes. Uh, but, but I do, I do see doctors, uh, 
really being reluctant to do that. My dad was like that. And uh, he was an obstetrician gynecologist. And, you know, he, he definitely felt some, he had very strong feelings that what he was doing was a, was a calling. Uh, and it wasn't about the money. But when his partners were driving Mercedes and he was driving an Oldsmobile, yep. you know, somebody was getting the money. Yep. Yep. So, you know, yep. why wasn't he, you know, so, so you should be able to ask for your fair share and do it without any shame. That is so real, very real. And, and just such a, such a meta, very unique perspective on doctors. We are trained, raised basically to believe that this is a calling and it is a calling, but it's also a job and we should be paid for what we do and it should be reasonable. And I totally agree with everything that you just said. Let's see what else I have on here. Dr. Volk. There are so many things that inspire me about you just in general. One thing that I love about you is your advocacy for health equity. Can you tell our listeners why pathologists are in such a special position to make improvements towards health equity? What positive changes do you see coming? Well, you know, we are at the foundation of modern medicine and pathology. You know, we, t- we touch almost every patient in healthcare. I mean, you think about you think about patients coming into the acute care setting into the hospital, you know, pretty much every patient gets their blood drawn at least once. And that blood is coming, you know, to our labs where, you know, we are the stewards to make sure that they're getting accurate and reliable test results. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of those patients are getting tissue biopsies uh, and we're making the diagnosis that then is directing the rest of the care that they receive. But even in the ambulatory setting, you know, where there's certainly there's testing, um, you know, that's not only the tests that come to a reference laboratory, but the point of care tests. And so those of us working in big health systems are helping to make decisions around which point of care tests are, are being used. And, and again, helping to choose the, the most accurate and reliable tests. So we have an opportunity to impact, you know, that very important foundational information that's entering the medical records. So one thing that we have recognized in the last couple of years is some assumptions that we were making uh, around some lab tests, for instance, the EGFR, the estimated glomerular filtration rate, um, where we were making, you know, the medical community uh, had agreed to make an adjustment for anyone who uh, was identified as being African-American. Yes. And we did that for an awfully long time, uh, thinking that uh, this racial identity uh, had a significant biological significance. We now understand that, you know, race as is to is really a social construct. Yes. It's not it's not a biological entity, and uh, you know it was really very uh, very shaky uh, uh, foundation to begin with. But yes. we've now eliminated uh, that adjustment to the EGFR calculations, and that's making a a big difference again across the board for anyone who's getting uh, testing for how their kidneys work. Yes. So to me, that was a great example of where, you know, we touch so many patients and one adjustment like that can have a giant impact Absolutely. on whole swaths of people. Yes. Will you be on the renal transplant list or not? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. 
Right. And, and how many, uh, before this change, how many uh, African-American folks were left off yes. the kidney transplant yes. list? How many died because they were left off the kidney transplant list? It's very, that is so true. Right. So I think that's that's just one example of where we could have a where we can have and have had a huge impact. I think also, as we uh, understand uh, gender uh, in a different way, as we uh, grow in our uh, expression of compassion uh, around folks who are non-binary, who, who are non-binary, right, and who are mm-hmm. uh, who are transgender and potentially yeah. taking. Um, you know, various kinds of hormones that may impact how their blood chemistries look. Yes. I think we have an opportunity to explore, you know, where, where do uh, adjustments need to be made again, to make sure that we're reflecting accurately in those, in those laboratory data, the pathophysiology of any given patient. Absolutely. I'm currently on my chemistry rotation. I'm on my my senior or medium senior chemistry rotation. And this entire rotation has been such a light into these disparities in laboratory medicine. For instance, you previously mentioned our transgender patients. I just did a presentation over a case report about a transgendered patient who had an EGFR that was calculated using their sex. And that prevented them from being placed on the renal transplant list. And these are, yes, and it was just one case report. And ultimately, the patient who's a trans man, he was put on the the kidney transplant list, but it was not until they stopped using the male calculation for EGFR. So in that regard, our doctors are doing what they think is right. This is a trans man who's taking hormones. We should use the male calculation for EGFR, but it took a year and a half for his kidney function to be bad enough using that calculation when if they would have taken a step back and said, you know, this is a five foot man who's 110 pounds, maybe, maybe, maybe we should use, use the the calculation for females. If they would have, then he would have been on, on the uh, transplant list sooner. And that's a very nuanced, like complicated thing to think about that I would have never never thought about had I not been on this rotation this year reading the case reports for myself. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, it makes you wonder if we, the next, uh, the next step in exploration there isn't in the gender being part of that formula at all. I, right. You know, I mean, like is a, that something that needs to be explored? I'm, yeah. You know, very it's, interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, like this whole rotation, I feel like we, we touched on the EGFR. Now I'm currently reading about alpha fetal protein and black mm-hmm. women and how we adjust or put in a factor for, for translating their raw data to, to the interpretable data. And it's just, it's really mind blowing chemistry, lab medicine. I feel like the more I know, the more I wish I didn't know. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, I think that's one of the wonderful privileges of being a doctor, you know, of being a mm-hmm. physician is that, um, you know, we, we are constantly learning and, yeah. and that, you know, it sounds like a cliche a little bit that, uh, well, you know, you're always going to be learning. I could tell you uh, at 54 years old as a physician, I am still absolutely learning brand new things and mm. it's great. It, you know, what a privilege. 
yes. I think that also keeps us pretty humble. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> the Jenny Kruger effect, like as soon as I realized I knew too much about AFP, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I could go back to before I knew. You're right. It does keep us humble. <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for such a great discussion, Dr. Volk. Now, okay, on behalf of myself and all the women I know, just bring just bringing it back to women in medicine, on behalf of all the women I know who are currently in training or on the interview trail for their very first job, could you give us some pointers? I guess, in other words, what advice would you give to women just starting out their pathology careers? Well, I th again, I think, I think this advice probably applies mostly to everybody, but maybe a little bit, maybe, maybe women will identify with it a little bit more. Um, it's important to understand that you're not, you don't have to and should not try to be all things to all people. So what do I mean by that? When I was uh, first in practice, uh, I had a, a young, you know, I had a, I had a newborn baby, uh, just given birth during my fellowship. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to be, you know, the uh, perfect suburban mother, uh, as well as uh, a fabulous young, uh, you know, up and coming uh, pathologist in a private practice, uh, as well as, you know, the perfect wife, that's a lot. <laughs> and it was a lot, right? And, and keep, you know, keep a perfect house. Oh, and, gosh. You know, all that, you know. And so I had, I had happily uh, gotten some help with childcare. Uh, obviously had to because I, I, I could not take uh, the newborn to work with me. And um, the woman who helped me take care of my, uh, my daughter, she she saw the stress in uh, my face and my body and so uh -huh. forth when I when I would come home from work and and try to you know and, and take over the care of, of uh, my daughter Diana and so after a couple of weeks of of uh, knowing me you know she said this she sat me down and she's you know she's you know about 20 years older than I am and she sat me down and she offered her perspective. And she said, you know, while you're at work, I, I will take care of this child. This child will be fine. This child is fine. Um, you need to focus on taking care of your patients while you're at work to the best of your ability. And let me help you uh, with some of these other duties that I can do you know, I can't look in the microscope, she said, but, but I can do the laundry. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I can't, um, you know, I'm not a physician, but I'm here to help you get all these other things done. And so she reminded me that I had help. And, and so I, I ran with that concept. And so I, I spent them, I spent some money uh, to, uh, have her uh, stay with us during the week. Um, I spent some money on having a housekeeper. And uh, so I didn't have to worry about keeping the house clean and spent, spent some money on um, having somebody, you know, having help with the laundry and with schlepping the kids. Yeah. And I really had to 
you know, let go of the idea that I was going to be able to be uh, a busy full-time pathologist and president of the PTO. Yeah, that is so real. You cannot do it all. I cannot do it all. And, mm. um, and I, I really had to get comfortable with that and that some, there were some things that I was going to do that were going to be good enough. Um, and one of the, one of the books that um, a friend of mine turned me on to when my kids were relatively little and I, ha I um, wound up having four children total, two uh, by birth and two by luck uh, through a second marriage. Um, and there's a wonderful book called Good Enough Parenting. Good Enough Parenting. Right. And so it you know, obviously you want to, I mean, the kids are incredibly important, um, but it was also important for me to, to be able to, to realize being a, you know, a, a full-time physician and do the thing that I had trained for so many years to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and not feel bad about it. Yeah. That's the biggest part. Honestly, it's the not feeling bad about it because we are raised in an environment where we feel like we need to have this, this great job, but also be able to be a full-time mom and a full-time like house cleaner, housewife, whatever. Right. And to just take a step back and be like, I'm going to have help and ask for help and hire help and not feel guilty for it. Oh, I still feel guilty just thinking about it. Well, and, and there are people out there who are happy to do this, to happy to do this yeah. work. And I mean, I have great respect for them um, yeah. and, you know, and uh, doing the work of, of running a household is important work. Right. And I, again, I have great respect for it and I was willing to, to pay to get support, to get those things done. The other thing is the full-time mom thing. Um you never stop being, I mean, once you're a parent, you're a parent, you know, I couldn't be worried about who was going to pick up the kiddo from school yeah, yeah. Uh, on a, on a half day uh, while I was also trying to, to flourish in my career. I just needed to get, I needed to be able to offload some of that burden. You know, nowadays they talk about um, this mental load. I, and, and they've just started talking about that in the last couple of years to mine that I've seen you know, and maybe it's been out there longer than I realized, but I, I think it's so great that we're having those discussions now where, um, two parent or two, two working parent families are, you know, realizing that if you're not real careful, one person can carry more Absolutely. of the mental load than the other. Yes. And, and just yes. to, to really just be cognizant of that. Yeah, I think a really important one. The other thing I would tell younger doctors coming up, um, that it matters how you carry yourself. And what do I mean by that? It, there are a lot of nonverbal, a, a lot of nonverbal communications that people in business learn how to manage. Uh, you know, people who go to MBA programs and so forth, they actually have classes on dealing, dealing with nonverbals and um, getting along with folks uh, in the workplace. Physicians don't get a lot of training in that. And, you know, I, 
Are you talking about like sitting with your arms crossed and like kind of being? I'm talking. Yes, I'm talking about sitting with your arms crossed. I'm talking about tone of voice. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. eye rolling. Ah. Uh, I'm talking about um, the 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 passive aggressive. Well, that's not nonverbal. I was going to say the passive aggressive. We talk about. Oh my gosh, we could talk about emails too. Go go back to that. But um, you know, just being being cognizant uh, that these things are actually really um, powerful and can communicate positively or negatively and work against you or work for you. Yes. And it took me a long time to really begin to understand uh, how I was getting in my own way with some of those nonverbals. Interesting. So you recognized qualities or traits that you were doing that may have led to certain outcomes? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, you know, and, and it, and it was happily people pointed it out to me. That's great that you had that kind of feedback, but it was hard to hear. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, it was absolutely hard to hear. So I think um, paying attention to those kinds of soft skills yeah, actually makes a big difference. Um, most pathologists don't don't get into trouble at work because they can't make a diagnosis. They get into trouble in the workplace because of communication skills, uh, because of the way they're carrying themselves, because of the you know maybe they're not controlling their you know their um, they don't yes. have enough control over their emotions yes. or their yes. reactions, mm-hmm. and so you know, really working on that, understanding that that is worth investing in and is really important. And so the only thing that I've found effective in, in, in improving my, you know, what some folks call executive presence um, is, is really doing mindfulness meditation. And you know, I'm not moving into an ashram anytime soon. That's for sure. <laughs> but just even five minutes a day for me has made a big difference. And just giving me a little bit of space behind the waterfall when something happens that I find um, stressful, it gives me just enough of a pause that I am less likely to pop off. Yes. Say or do something that yes. I'm going to end up regretting. Mm-hmm. The other I thing, totally feel that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that I have, and I'm still frankly working on, is, you know, I love a gotcha moment. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? What's a gotcha moment? Well, I, you know, I'm a little bit of gotcha. <laughs> well, I mean, I <clears throat> occasionally... You know, it it is fun to be right. Yes, I was right? I was wondering if that's what you would you were going to say. Yes, I agree. Right. It's fun to be right when it's you're fun, right. It's fun to be right when you're yes. right. Yes. And the problem is, it, in some situations, you know, one is one one is right at the expense of somebody else in the room. Yep. And. What I am now appreciating is how absolutely expensive that can be. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is it can really take a toll on personal relationships and your ability to work with somebody uh, over the long term. And so it's what I'm now understanding is the, the relationships that I have with people I work with are really worth preserving. 
they're really precious. And I don't think I fully appreciated um, how antagonizing folks in a meeting or uh, maybe potentially embarrassing somebody because I was really keen on being correct. Yeah, you know, I exactly. wanted to be and right. You were, and you were right. You probably were right. Well, sometimes, the... <laughs> sometimes not. But, you know, if I was embarrassing somebody making my point and it felt kind of good in that moment, it's not worth it. It is just not worth it. And, and so uh, I really, I really think that's important to understand that I, and if somebody could have taught me that 20 years ago, um, that would have been really cool. Uh, but it's taken me a little while to learn that. That is such good advice for myself and for the our listeners out there. Like, I feel like in that that's relatable for me at the multi head when all of my colleagues and I are sitting at the multi head and one yeah. person is right, like they are right, mm-hmm. and they're like kind of not necessarily bashing, but being like, "Are you like guys? Come on, it's not this. Like y'all, come on, look at it. Like I I know I do that. I'm guilty as that." just as often as anyone else says. And I, I, it makes me think about how it must be, how, how it must feel to be the person on the other side of that, on the other side of me pointing at them being like, are you crazy? Like, why would you think that? That's never as extreme as I am, but that feels, that feels like it would really hurt on the other side. And it reminds me of me being a first year and frequently being wrong. And it, it just, it's one of those things that like, yeah, I was wrong. And yeah, someone was right. And they did point it out, but they pointed it out in a gentle way and in a way that made me feel okay to be wrong again. And the dynamics of, of, of correcting people, like there's a time and a place and at the multi-head, maybe that is the time and place because you're learning, but in the middle of a very large room talking about whatever lab initiative you're doing, maybe that's not the place to call out someone, even though you may, may be right. Absolutely. And I think I'm really glad you brought up the multi-headed scope um, environment, like at a consensus conference. You know, consensus conference is a huge opportunity to really build a culture, either a culture that is uh, nurturing and a culture that promotes um, learning and um, curiosity curiosity and and exploration. Yes, yes. Or a culture that sort of shuts people down. Yes, kind of be toxic and belittling. And, and, and it's and it's very it's it's tough to strike that to get that balance right um, between you want to get the right answer for the patient clearly, um, but you also want to have a team of pathologists who can function highly and who can count on each other to in a way that is collaborative and constructive and and that will let you live you know let you succeed another day yes absolutely to going, help more patients right yes yes going to qa every day it's on zoom it's been on zoom since i've been a resident during the pandemic but i strongly believe that going to qa every day and just like like uh going to qa and listening to the conversations has been so pivotal in my understanding in how to interact with other individuals because it's not always something crazy at QA. It's not always an educational component, but it's maybe, but it may be someone really thinking it's one thing. And then an older attending or the more senior attending saying, no, I think it's something else. And to hear how they discuss 
both whether it's a positive outcome or maybe leaning a more negative outcome, it, it's been very, very important to me to see that. I think QA, if our listeners don't regularly attend, it, it's so important to attend and just see how, how the experts do it. You can really learn a lot. Well, you can, and, and you can also learn a lot be, about how how to interact with a colleague that you might disagree with. Yes, yes. Because, you know, no, I really still have not met anybody who came to work to do a lousy job. And I haven't met a lot of stupid pathologists. (laughs) Yeah. I really haven't. I haven't, I really haven't met a lot of dumb physicians, you know, um, and, and I haven't met a lot of really anybody in healthcare who didn't want to do a good job that day. So the way we react to each other's mistakes and the way we treat ourselves when we have a, when we make a mistake is really um, important uh, to be as compassionate as possible and to assume, really assume the best. I mean, I, another book, uh, I love to recommend books. If yes, my husband yes. says Keep it's fine. It's my language of love is to, to recommend oh, a yes. book. Yes. But I, another book that I strongly recommend people read uh, is a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. Leadership and, and Self-Deception. Yeah. And it's written by um, the Arbinger Institute. It doesn't actually have a single author. Okay. Okay. And one of the things it does uh, address in the book is the stories that we will tell ourselves about different situations. Oh, yes, go on. Right. So, you know, um, say somebody leaves early. Well, let me let me make it more generic than that. You know, you're in traffic and somebody cuts you off. Right. And, you know, that can be super frustrating. And you can you know, my story often is, well, they're just inconsiderate. They don't care. You know, they're totally selfish. Yes, a common sentiment. Yes. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, but you know, what could be going on is, you know, their kid's sick and they're trying to get to the emergency room as quickly yes. as possible because yes. their kid's sick. Yes, you know, absolutely. You, you just don't know. You don't know. You don't know. And how could you know? And so the reaction that you have, it is so, it's so important. Right. So like if, so, you know, and we're all going to make mistakes. And, and anatomic pathology in particular, like radiology, there's a permanent record of what you looked at. So somebody can always go back and second guess your work, which is, which is really a lot on our egos, right? I mean, yeah, is, it hurts. Uh, it's I hard. Bet. Yeah. That's right. It's really hard. So um, you, you know, you will be wrong at some point in your career, you know, and, but how you handle that is really, um, it defines you as I think as a physician. And if you can be honest about it, put the patient at the center and not, and, and, and when you, when you find a colleague who's made an error, not make an assumption that they were rushing, that they didn't care, that they weren't trying hard enough, because, you know, again, while you're doing a frozen section, you're, you might have a lot of incoming, for instance, you know, there might, there's, it tends to be a highly uh, complex environment with a lot of distractions, right? The phones are ringing. Yes. People are interrupting you. Right. The cover slip the is the cover slipped all the way. I mean, who, yes. Whatever, you know, I mean, there's a million things that can, can provide a variability there, but I think to, to try to, 
to find as much grace for our colleagues and as much grace for ourselves in those situations is really important and not to make up a story that goes with it until, you know, let your colleague tell you their story. And I, I mean, again, I'm still working on that, but I think if we can remain curious about, you know, how things really might have gone wrong, um, and not seek to place blame accurately, but really seek to understand. That's so true. Like be gentle with yourself and with your colleagues. Like we're all just doing the best that we can possibly do each day. Right. And then, you know, look for look for uh, fixes that aren't people centered, but really process centered. Right. I mean, I I often wonder why in the world we don't have um, our sign out rooms more like a cockpit. You know, surgeons do not take phone calls while they're operating. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Typically. Right. They're not they're not fielding a bunch of phone calls. Um, when I was a resident at the Cleveland Clinic now, I this was many years ago, we had sign out rooms where the phone calls were not were the phone calls coming to the attending pathologist were screened by an assistant. And so that it would minimize the interruptions during wow. that important yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, we, that that yes, attendings get called all the time during sign out. Yeah. Right. So why why are we allowing that to happen? Why we need to value our own work enough to protect ourselves while we're doing it to prevent mm-hmm. those distractions that are prevent some of them are preventable. Some of them aren't, but yeah, some of them sure, are. Sure, sure. Wow, that's, so anyway. that's such a valuable comment, honestly. And it's so true just about the field of pathology. I totally agree. Okay, so that I feel like that's like kind of wraps up the main questions that I had to ask you, but I did have one more that I want to sneak in if you don't mind. So I know okay. That, okay, cool. So I know that this is so, so, so random. But before we completely finish this interview, I want to ask you a question. I absolutely love your OOTDs, your outfit of the day. <laughs> what or who inspires your fashion aesthetic, Dr. Volk? I will tell you, when I was a resident, um, uh, there was one of our dermatopathologists, uh, Dr. Wilma Bergfeld. Uh, she really Im- she really impressed me. So she was another woman who, uh, she's a few years older than I am, um, but she also had that gravitas that gravitas. Um, that Dr. Cass had, and I imagine still has. And and I understand Dr. Bergfeld, you know, she's still working at the Cleveland Clinic. And as I understand it, she's still uh, got this just tremendous amount of class and gravitas. And so she, she always came to work uh, really pulled together, like, you know, she it was, and she described to me one day that, you know, as I commented on one of the beautiful suits she was wearing, she, she said, I do this because I respect the patients that we're working for. I respect, and I respect the physicians that I'm working with that I want to look like I'm ready for business. I'm ready to, uh, I, I, I want to look like I've, I'm paying attention you know? So, she she always went for a pretty tailored look and so uh, i must admit she's in the back of my mind when i go shopping <laughs> so a particular person who inspired you with their gravitas maybe that's why you know what 
maybe when I become the president of the CAP, I I too will wear a, was it bright red or was it fuchsia? That pant and blazer suit that you wore, because that had gravitas, if I, if I could say anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it was fuchsia. It was yeah. fuchsia. It was beautiful. And I know that that, you know, this is, a, this is a conversation about being a woman and pathology. And I know sure. that not all women are say femme presenting or like to dress that way, but sure. on, on some days I'm, I'm more androgynous dressing than I am on other days when I'm more femme presenting, but I deeply, deeply love your fashion sense. And, and I'm glad to know that it is inspired by someone else because you inspire me and maybe tomorrow I will be wearing that pantsuit. <laughs> That's wonderful. Awesome. It sounds like gravitas is the word of the day. Yes. Uh... <laughs> so as we wrap up, I just wanted to get any final thoughts, Dr. Durham. Yeah. So Dr. Volk, I know that when we first started, we, before we were like on the record, when we were off the record and we were just chatting, it, it, I know I've said this so many times, but it is just such a pleasure to talk with you. I don't know if you remember this, but when I interviewed at UT San Antonio in 2019, the coordinator like kind of grabbed me to the, to the side. She was like, can you come with me? And it was at your request to, to kind of shake my hand. And I went in your office and to see you walk out and, and just for, you were so busy. I felt, I was like, oh my God, there's no time. There's no way she has time for me. But for you to step out and just say hi to me has left a strong impact on my life and has made me feel so just confident and reassured that I am in the right place at the right time. And I, I just could not thank you enough for being here and letting me interview you today. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. That's lovely. Dr. Vogue, do you have any final thoughts? I'm just delighted to get to talk to you today. And it really is such an honor to serve our profession in this way. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and for this fantastic conversation, Dr. Volk and Dr. Durham. And I want to thank you all for listening to this CapCast. Mm-hmm.